This is Behind the Exploratory Lessons, episode number 20. We are indeed in the final episode of season number one because I felt like 20 is a good number to cap off this season. Don't worry, I will not be going away for an indefinite amount of time. I will be back more than likely in the winter time where we have so much stuff to going on. Hopefully by around that time, we'll have more guests. Speaking of guests... I do have one more in store, as you saw in the title, but I'll save you the talk of who it is until much later. The first thing I want to talk about is kind of like explaining why 20 is a good way to cap off this season. Here's why. Considering this is the last week I am 25 years old, I turned 26 this Friday, where I should honestly be at Indianapolis, but I've already wore that subject to death. I'm not going to discuss about Indianapolis of any capacity. And for the duration of this episode, and for a good amount of time, I said to myself, well, this is it, my last week of being 25, I gotta reflect a little bit before I come back for season 2 when I'm 26, where I hope the production aspects, the guests, will be more lenient and more open, and at the end of the day, I want to have a more open mind. I want to tell stories. I told some stories along the way, but I want to make it more elaborate and more detailed rather than just going through the mundane process of recording, explaining what is going on in the world of racing, which I said at the very beginning is only part of my program, not the entire thing. Naturally, it became the thing once again, and that's not what I am about. I want to be more diverse. When I had TJ Tringell and all the other guests throughout the season, I want to bring some human elements. Sure, TJ and I talked about NASCAR and Shauna Robinson in particular. It's, it's kind of ironic we talk about Shauna Robinson and then we saw one particular performance happen this past weekend, which honestly brought up the debate of which female driver has a shot of making it a racing. Does it really reward performance or does it reward personality? And that's one of the major topics of debates now probably carrying on for the rest of the year and for the probably the next couple, to say the least. Because right now we have one driver in particular that is all about personality. That's all they want to talk about. And when it comes to the driving element, it's been reduced. You know who I'm referring to if you go back to a couple episodes ago where I had this huge debate as far as a certain driver, whether or not belongs in, in this particular series. And I stand strong by it to this day. But the performance is very essential. The other one, on the other hand, is about performance. And you'll get to know more about that side in this particular episode to cap off season number one. But first, as I mentioned, I want this to be more than just that. As I was saying about TJ, before I ultimately talk about racing again, it always comes back to racing, doesn't it? We talk about music, we talk about movies, we talk about our college days. Where I hope you have listened to both parts because they're very fascinating. It's probably one of my favorite ones that I had so far. Where we talk about the days of Idaho, and I know by season two, I will talk more about it. It's just one to lay the foundation for such topics in this season before going full bore the very next. So you'll hear more about the Idaho stories and why I feel the way I feel about all those topics. But here's another thing that you need to consider and remember. I want to bring more of the human element. I say this multiple times, the human element is as important as the topics I discuss. The, when I have a guest, it's mostly about them. And TJ went into full details of all of his journey. I, I usually, I always allow the guests to tell their side. I try not to jump in unless 
necessary when mostly when it's necessary it's just kind of like very quick after the quick responses like with frisky nixon where we talk about the youtube system being corrupt as it is it is corrupt i got rid of so many features like if you put 0.095 or point or 1.05 the song or the audio whatever you're listening to the pitch changes 9.5 is down i consider down three percent of the original audio pitch Bump it to 1.05 in the speed scale on the YouTube video. It's like a 3% increase. Of, it's like radio. Some songs are high pitch. Speaking of music, Dynamite by BTS is number one once again. It is now the second time it's hit the number one charts. And I'm willing to bet those freaking Google ads is the main reason why it got up. Because like, oh, uh, let's, it's part of the agenda. I, I know Billboard are infamous for the BTS agenda. And I still stand by it. But it was stuff like that. And it, at the end of the day, stuff like that is one I want to talk about in the next season. There's going to be still plenty of racing off-season tales. There's always going to be one. As I said, there is a lot to talk about behind the exploratory lenses. And that's what the title is. I pulled the curtain because I'm a photographer, I'm a writer... And when it's time to tell stories, it flowed. And I want to do more of that. But before I reflect on what has been my life as a 25-year-old, we do have one more guest to wrap up this season. It's not under the Gracie Trotter, driver of the number 99 NES Toyota Camry for Bill McAnally Racing in the Arkham Menard Series West. Yes, indeed. The winner of the Las Vegas Boring Race that was held this past Saturday becoming... The second ever female to win out west, the second one, but the first one in the ARCA banner. Because remember, this is the first year that the east and the west are under the ARCA sanction, where in the past it used to be under NASCAR. She led 95 out of 150 last, which is the second most by a female in any form of major racing series, regional, national, you name it. Between NASCAR and ARCA, Shauna Robinson holds the record of leading all 100 laps in her win at Myrtle Beach in 1989 when it was part of the NASCAR Goodies Dash Series. Gracie is the second most at 95. Below her are, is Dominique Van Vierigen from Canada who led 88 laps at Stafford, the most from an East race. If you're wondering what is the most from ARCA, the big ARCA, National ARCA, is Haley Deegan at 85. From I-44 Speedway this season. Shauna Robinson, the most she ever led was Atlanta in 2000 in the finale where she led 66 laps. Probably could have been a winner, but she ended up second in that race. On the cup level, it's Danica Patrick, 11 laps led at Watkins Glen in 2016. She also holds the record from a female driver who led the most laps in a single Xfinity race. She did that in 2012 in Montreal, known as the infamous shoe incident that ultimately took her out of the race. She was already having car problems, mechanical, but that shoe didn't do her any wonders. So yeah, as much as Danica Patrick gets crapped on her on NASCAR side, remember she was a pretty good, moderately good IndyCar driver. But, speaking of Trotter, I felt this way for a good, for a good amount of time that after she's had a great, she had that great run in Douglas County, and she also had a good outing in Colorado, I said, I would not be awfully surprised that Trotter finds a way to win one of these races. And lo and behold, she did in dominant fashion. She didn't use the bumper. She didn't use didn't wait till the last lap to take somebody out or move out of the way. She actually set the tone, controlled the pace the right way. She made most of that opportunity where the lead 
the lead was in her hands. Excellent restarts. How she got the lead was a brilliant battle between Jesse Love and Blaine Perkins, the two guys battling out for the West Championship this season. Made most of it, went to the bottom, took the lead, and pretty much never looked back. You get to hear her side of the story of how that win got the whole racing world on notice. And rightfully so. The fact that she got the job done the way she did was very, very impressive. There was no luck involved. There was no all that shenanigans that Deegan has done this season. In retrospective, all of those three wins that Deegan had were great. They were memorable. But from Trotter's point of view, is one of the is dominant. It was clean. She made the most out of any opportunity that came to her, and she did it from the ninth starting spot out of a thirteen car field. Yeah, it's only like thirteen cars, but ninth. She was the the slowest of the four McAnally cars in the qualifying board. The fact she went from ninth slowly got the car better and better. There were no brakes at all. It was straight trailblazing, one hundred fifteen laps. There was no brakes. She did it naturally. It was earned, and that's what I feel like this day and age in mainstream racing, female drivers, it's what I look for, not just from females, but any driver. Just with the females, you have a certain standard that's been established, but when there's a driver that comes into the scene doing it differently in a respectable manner, that's that's a hell of that's a hell of an accomplishment. No disregard. The fact that people debated on Twitter. Like always, everything when it comes to Twitter is always debates and drama and jumping to conclusions and vice versa. Talk about how she dominated that race. Not this whole debate of, oh, it's ARCA doesn't mean value. It does. No woman has ever won an ARCA-sanctioned race. No one till this Saturday. And with that being said, here is my interview that I did with Gracie on Tuesday discussing about this victory that has changed the landscape of auto racing for the time being and also you can hear more about her her upbringing being from a racing family the one that i really enjoy that really fascinated me is who is her favorite racing driver of all time and you'll get to hear that right now so here is my interview with gracie trotter it's my absolute honor to have the Las Vegas Bull Ring winner from this past Saturday, Gracie Trother. Gracie, how has things been in the past 72 hours? It's It's been a wild ride, pretty crazy. Uh, talking to a lot of people, social media has been going insane. Uh, but it's good to be back home out on the East Coast, uh, getting to celebrate with my family and friends back here. So uh, it's been awesome, pretty crazy, but I can't complain. It's, it's been great. I totally can imagine it's been kind of very crazy considering all the buzz that's been going around that you won in dominant fashion, to say the least, because when I looked up trying to see how many, if it's one of the more strongest runs by a female driver, it's certainly well up there, considering you led 95 out of the 150 laps. But as you mentioned in the race, there was a couple crazy instances where restarts were very key, and I felt like, and I imagine the viewers back home knew that you nailed those restarts, but... Just walk us through the first half before you ended up taking the lead, which it looked like was going to be boiled down to the Brunkati cars and Jesse for that time period. Yeah, for sure. At the beginning of the race, uh, we actually started ninth. And I didn't realize how good of a car I had until probably around lap 20 or so. 
Um, I was kind of being cautious at the beginning. I knew we had 150 laps to get it done. And so I was being cautious trying to pass the cars. I knew, knew I was a lot faster than the cars that were ahead of me. Um, and once I did get around those cars, I could still see the leaders. I'm like, okay, like, the car's actually pretty good. We got a shot at this. And a um, couple restarts here and there, we, we worked our way up to the front every single time. And around lap 54, when we did make the pass for the lead, it was on a restart. And Jesse and I think it was Blaine, um, they were running side by side. They kind of got into each other a bit, and it left me a hole open. And my spotter said, go, go, go. So I went for the hole, made it work, coming out, and let let those two figure out what they needed to do as we were going three wide. And um, I just held my line and went for it. And from there on out, we walked away with it. The car, it was awesome. In practice, we struggled a bit with it being too tight, uh, making us qualify in the ninth position. But in the race, me and my crew chief, we talked a while on what we should do if we should kind of do the same things we did back at the race in February or not. But, um, we ended up making it work out pretty good. And, um, I couldn't complain about the car. They kept telling me to slow down, save. And I'm like, I don't, if I slow down anymore, the car will be stopped on the racetrack. So, uh, the, the car was awesome. Um, it felt like I didn't even have to drive it, but it was just driving itself. But every restart, um, I executed it pretty well, except for one restart. I did spin the tires, and Jesse did get a little bit ahead of, of me. And we beat the doors down a little bit, um, but I ended up getting away from them. But the restarts is one thing I've struggled with this year. Moving up to these bigger, faster, heavier cars, um, it, it's very different for me. And so I've been talking to a lot of people, uh, getting advice on how to execute these restarts better and uh it ended up working out for me pretty good who has been very helpful on on getting those restarts down because that's one of the things that around arc uh for whoever it may be whether it's like a sam mayer or Haley degerman Brittany samora last year restarts are very vital to get that advantage considering at bull rings like vegas you want to be in the preferred lane so you can have that clean air and pull away yeah for sure um, I've actually been talking <clears throat> to a couple drivers here back home. Uh, there was a guy who used to actually race for my dad, and he he works at my dad's company, Calico Coatings now. He was a pretty have a good, heck of a driver himself. And me and him, a couple weeks ago, actually had a little restart class <laughs> over at Calico on the whiteboard. So he was drawing up all these pictures for me, helping me with these restarts. Um, and actually, when I won a couple weeks ago at Hickory, I used the same restart um, tactic that he showed me. So he's helped me a lot in the restarts. And um, even talking to some of the guys that I race late mall stocks with back home, like Josh Berry, um, I talk to him a lot, and he gives me a whole lot of advice. So uh, lots of guys like that back home have been a huge help to me. Speaking of Hickory, before starting, before setting up all the questions for this interview, I you talked about how big of a deal it is to win at what is your home track in down in North Carolina with so much history, so much prestige. How great it was it to get that victory, which and honestly, it's kind of started the momentum that you've been carrying on to this time period right now. Yeah, Hickory is very special to me. I actually grew up going to that track almost every weekend. 
and also going out to Concord Speedway. My dad owned a race team. He owned two USAC midgets and a late model stock. So we were out there a lot. My dad used to race there in the early 90s. And um, so I grew up going to that track. And even when I started racing late models, we tested out there all the time. It's only 25 minutes from our race shop in Denver, North Carolina. So grew up there going testing all the time i know that track very well it definitely is a driver's track both turns they are different from each other so it's that track's really an animal it's really bumpy um people come there all the time and say this track is so bumpy i can't even see it's it's vibrating my seat so bad so it i've kind of gotten used to it and i'm like what do you mean it's bumpy <laughs> <laughs> so so that track it's very special to me and i always I've always dreamed of my first win being there, and it ended up finally happening. So um, I'm really happy. My my dad was there to share it with me, and my whole family was up there too. Speaking of the fa- family, it's kind of interesting how some, in this day and age, it's like with family heritage. Of course, I talked to Holly Holland a couple weeks ago that family is in the racing bl- the excuse me the racing is in the family blood it sounds like for sure it has definitely been in their, in their blood just tell us how influential is it to have a family that's been involved in racing to kind of help you grow as a competitor and also make it this far and ideally i'd imagine get to that next level in the foreseeable future yeah so like i was saying my dad raced and so did his father he raced too so third generation I grew up going to the racetrack with my dad, and uh, when I was around seven, eight years old is when I started racing. Uh, he, My dad started out racing go-karts, and we kind of looked into the quarter midget stuff, and my dad didn't like how those things flipped all the time. He wanted me to be safe. That's one reason why he didn't want me to start racing, because he knew how dangerous it was and also how much money it cost and how much time and effort it does take in order to make it in the sport and he was also trying to you know grow his business at the same time and that's one reason why he stopped racing is from his business and when I was born too he wanted to spend uh some more time with me at home so um it's been in the family it was just me and my dad going racing every weekend at the go-kart track we kind of just did it for fun we didn't really expect uh, several years down the road, I'd be getting my first Arca Series win. So it, it's it's been pretty special to have him by my side through it all. He's taught me all the ins and outs of it, um, of the mistakes he's made and the things that helped him out as he was racing. So um, he's the man who's helped me make it happen. Yeah, most certainly, for sure. It's always it's very important to have that help and support speaking of help and support going back to that win at vegas you had a couple of your teammates like geo congratulate you and considering this entire racing bill mcanelli is filled with all rookies but you have the most experience for the most part on the concrete compared to the other ones that have mostly dirt backgrounds have you kind of embraced in a way the mentorship role of trying to help those guys out but also know when there's a race at hand you gotta go trailblazing to get the best performance out out of any given race considering everything that has happened this year with the pandemic yeah um being more on the asphalt side compared to geo holly and jesse 
I know Jesse, even though he's 15, I'm pretty sure he has more late model experience than I do on the asphalt. Um, I know he's raced out on the West Coast for a long time in the late model stuff. So I actually lean on Jesse a lot for some things, and um, he has some really good advice for me, and I always try to listen to whatever he has to say. Um, considering he does have three wins this year, which is it, it's awesome to see him and his rookie year being able to do that. Um, but, yeah, um, we all lean on each other, even Gio and Holly's experience on the dirt stuff too. Um, driving a loose race car is obviously fast, everyone says. So having that dirt experience does help drivers that do move to asphalt being able to drive loose race cars too. So we all do uh, lean on each other for for help yeah, when it comes to their driving it seems like there's some some people have a very aggressive driving style but sometimes some, the aggression can lead to some contact of course Haley has been known as the very aggressive move people out of the way sometimes a little bit too early but in some aspects whereas Brittany was more of the clean racer competitor trying to earn driver's respect where do you stand as far as a competitive nature what how are you best your Describe your driving style for those who are unaware of your upbringing and kind of your racing style. I'd say I'm kind of in the middle of it. Um, I'm always going to race someone as clean as they race me or as dirty as they do race me. Uh, so that's the kind of how I've always been. Um, I always, being also being a female in the sport, lots of guys I've had experience of people going after me, guy drivers going after me for, you know, passing them or doing better. I've had it said to my face before. So um, I will be aggressive when I have to, but um, I, I always try to race as clean as I can. I never want to wreck someone for the win because I want to be, I want to earn the win myself. If I don't feel like I earn it, then the win is not as exciting or special to me than if I did earn the win. So that's one big thing to me. But one thing I've always found by is if you drive me dirty, I'll drive you back the same. Or if you go out and wreck me on purpose, I'll go out and wreck you back one way or another. So uh, that's kind of how I've always been. But um, I am more of a clean racer because being a rookie and moving up in the sport, I want to gain that respect and let people know that I'm here to race and not here to tear people's cars up. So um, gaining that respect to me um, is really important, especially racing the late model stocks back home. I'm racing against Josh Berry, even Supers. I race against Brandon Schetzer, veterans like that who've been racing for a long time. If I gain the respect from them, I can learn from them a lot and go out to them and pick their brain a little bit, and they'll help me out in return. Oh, for sure. I kind of figured, like, in this day and age, respect is very essential, especially considering how in this business is very cutthroat, and also, but also at the same time, if drivers earn that respect and gain that respect, they're more than willing to help you out in any capacity. And that's kind of what reminded me when you talked about Josh earlier when it comes to those, and also the restart school, which, honestly, I never realized that was the thing, the restart school, which was something I learned after you mentioned that so well we kind of made that up but <laughs> oh be a new thing now. yeah i'd imagine because even the best have struggled on those restarts i said to myself i wonder if they practice that in some capacity because 
guys like Jeff Gordon, I remember to this very day that when it comes to restarts, it's never his foray, especially double file. It, it always seems to be one of those guys that just couldn't adapt. So I figured something like that might be helpful for any competitor to learn how to nail those restarts. Yeah, 100%. Restarts are very important to racing because it's either you could lose a bunch of spots or gain a lot of spots. So restarts are a very important part that um, you need to learn and get down if uh, you want to be successful. Absolutely. When you talked about during the telecast about your crew chief, Roger, how has he been very influential as far as the team chemistry of that entire 9-9 team and that led to that victory? Yeah, this year, like, working with a new team, I kind of went through that with uh, going to red racing because I've always had the same people throughout my racing career that I've been used to um, that I know very well. And so going to red racing, I had to learn how to work with new people, and so that helped me uh, going to BMR this year, working with Roger and my my new team and so me and roger haven't gotten along the best but me and him believe in each other we always have since day one uh the first day me and roger talked um we said we were gonna go win a race this year and, and we did it so no matter how many hard times me and him had this year we've always made the best out of it every single race and always have had good finishes this year uh definitely exceeded my expectations with everything and um roger's been a big help he's been really hard on me this year which i'm really grateful for um he's helped me a lot in my development and for those who are trying to be an aspiring racing driver or trying to be an aspiring crew member how important is it to go into that knowing that sometimes it's going to be hard sometimes they're going to be constructor criticism or sometimes such criticism it warrants more motivation. If you could, right? So, in racing and anything you do, if you want to be successful, if you want to make it to the next level, you're going to have to accept the constructive criticism by anyone, especially the ones who have been there, done that, who have made it in the sport, um, who have been successful. No matter how bad you don't want to hear it or do, um, you listen to it. And I've always been the type my dad's always told me is to keep your ears open and your mouth shut. Just listen to what they have to say and take it all in. So um, that's one thing I've had to learn over the years. And um, learning that and being where I am today, that's, that's really helped a lot is you have to listen to those things, good or bad. And that is what makes you stronger, and that's what makes you more successful. Now, going, from, there's only a few more races left in the in the regional level of ARCA. Any of those tracks, you have, of course, All-America, you have Kern, and, of course, go, Phoenix. Have you had any experience around those tracks, especially considering you're from North Carolina? I'd imagine probably not. If not, out of those three tracks, which ones you can relate to from the ones you previously ran? I've actually been to all three of those tracks this year. So uh, I raced Roseville in a late model race not too long ago, a couple months ago, back in August. Did that. Uh, got some experience there. And then we actually went to test some 
late models at Kern back in July. So I got to do some laps around there for a couple hours. And then earlier this year, we did the Arkham Menard Showdown race at Phoenix to get ready uh, for the end of the year. So I got some laps there, but we ended up blowing a motor around lap 60, I think it was. We were actually running pretty good there and ended up blowing a motor. So that ended my day early. But I really enjoyed Phoenix. That, that was definitely the most fun track I've ever been on. Yeah, for, I was gonna, I was gonna follow it up saying like, would, when you when it comes to not completing a race, how much did you learn? But it sounds like you certainly did learn. Of course, this was the last race before everything went down with the pandemic and everything. Where back at Phoenix, you had all this practice and qualifying, plenty all all of that jazz. To now this year is just, and I know for sure in Evergreen it was just qualifying, then straight to the race with like a one day quick turnaround. So I was definitely understand how things can happen and in this time period being young how difficult has it been to know that when it comes to sponsorships or events it's very difficult to do knowing these circumstances where some areas like even when you won there was no crowds to witness that landmark victory for the Arkham and Art series yeah so ever since we came back racing after the pandemic uh, every single race from then on out has been either 30 minutes to an hour of practice and whatever your fastest time in practice is where you qualify. And so being a rookie, going to all these brand new tracks I've never been to before has been a struggle for me because this year is my learning year and I've wanted to learn all I can and it's difficult to be able to do that only having that limited amount of practice. So it definitely has been a struggle, but I've had some great people around me to help me execute it um, as much as I can, as good as I can with what time we do have to do that. Um, and yeah, like you said, not having those fans there. And when I won at Hickory, there was no fans. There was a couple of fans. They let some people up in the grass area where you could park your cars and stay in your cars and watch. Um, but at Vegas, there was nobody. So it is a little bit weird getting out of your car. There's not as much excitement um, getting out of your car and there's people cheering you on and you have people to look at um, and scream to when you get out of the car in victory lane. So it, it is a bit different. Um, it's a little weird. So um, I'm just hoping we can get those fans back. But I am glad that they do have... Um, the races where you can watch on track pass so that's pretty cool no for sure don't we all wish everything seems to settle down where fans could come back and then going back to do more of my my passions which is the writing and the photography side of things because that's definitely understand that and hopefully that changes because it does feel weird even when at evergreen when blaine won it, it felt weird that there was no one no one dare to witness that. Of course, you can see it on the streams, which is very nice in this day and age. But, of course, I'd imagine when that time comes where there's crowds there, that next victory is probably going to be ever bit special. Oh, for sure. So I'm wondering, uh, this is a curious thought, how often people misconcept because it says your hometown is Denver, North Carolina. How often and how common is it people misconcept Denver being Colorado where you're from North Carolina? Oh, all the time. 
I get asked if I'm from Colorado several times, and no matter how many times I put Denver, North Carolina on something, I guess no one reads it uh, right, and they always think Colorado. I actually, ever since the win, I've all already had a couple articles wrote um, that I am from Colorado. But Colorado is not too bad of a place to be from. I do. Uh, I went out there for the first time when we raced Colorado National Speedway not too long ago, and I think it's beautiful there. I love the mountains, love the cold weather, and uh, I wouldn't mind even living there. So, <laughs> so I guess it's not too bad of a place I could be <laughs> be from. But no, I am from North Carolina, and uh, it's actually our town. We have a sign here. When you enter the town, it's called Denver of the East. Well, there you there you have it. Because where I'm from in Washington, there's two Lake Woods. Where it's like 60 to 90 minute drive. There's like North Lakewood and then there's South Lakewood. How I distinguish it is that the Lakewood that I know is just plain old Lakewood. The Lakewood down south where it's nearby Seattle and Tacoma, I just call it the other Lakewood or South Lakewood. But okay, yeah. it, that just when you mentioned the Denver of the East, that kind of reminded me of that side note. But we're near down to the very end, the very end of this interview. So usually at the end when I have guests on or when I do interviews for to write about, I typically try to ask fun topics. So the first one that comes to mind because I is music. How would you describe your musical taste? Uh, country is my favorite, especially the 80s, 90s country, Alan Jackson. All those, all those singers, I, I love it. So country is definitely my favorite. But honestly, I like I like all music. Um, I, I'm really a big music person. I like classic rock. I like newer rock. I like the pop and rap. But country will always be my number one. Favorite song from that time period of the 80s and 90s country? Because when it comes to that genre, that time period is right around the ones that I typically enjoy the most when the time allows me. Because for what mine is all over the place, like literally all over the place. Like it's I go from a face to when I listen to certain songs. Yeah, for sure. I think one of my favorites is probably "Dust on the Bottle" and "Neon Moon." It's it's hard for me. Every song that comes on, I'm like, oh, this is my song. But <laughs> I like them all. But I think Dust on the Bottle and Neon Moon are my favorites. No, for sure. Racing idol that you stand by to this day, like your favorite racing driver of all time. Could be family, could be non-family. Mine is AJ Foyt. Um, it was also my dad's favorite driver. And... He's become mine. My dad told me lots of stories about him. and um, I just really appreciate what he's done for the sport. And um, AJ won in anything he got in. He was a bad-to-the-bone driver. So um, I, he's definitely my idol, and I, I'd love to be like him one day. Um, just being such a good driver, you win in anything. And also Tony Stewart, too. Those are real, real good, excellent examples because when it comes to younger drivers, they will probably see somebody from their time, but the fact you brought up somebody way before your time, but also, of course, you mentioned your father's favorite driver was AJ. That's pretty intriguing, which leads to a real quick follow-up. 
How vital is it to be versatile in racing? Because you said you run super late models, you went to the karting, and now you drive stock cars. And whereas your other teammates come from dirt, where AJ started off back in the day. Sorry, I missed you there. Oh, as I was, I was saying, the importance of diverse being a versatile racing driver, kind of like, like Floyd and your teammates, they have different backgrounds in racing in this day and age. Because sometimes... There's drivers around the world that they focus on that one discipline, but others will have a passion to do more than one thing. Yeah, like, like I grew up racing road course go-karts, so part of what I was interested in is maybe moving up to doing some, like, road course IndyCar type things. So um, I think what Jimmy Johnson is doing is pretty cool, going from NASCAR to the IndyCar stuff. So um, that's something that I was kind of interested in, and I actually drove... Last year, I raced Justin Haley's uh, Dirt UMP Modified, and I had a blast doing that. So I'm a really big fan of the dirt stuff, and if I could do dirt racing and asphalt racing, I think that would be pretty cool. But uh, dirt racing is definitely something if uh, one day when I stop racing asphalt, dirt racing would be pretty cool, just like Tony Stewart is doing. Yeah, and I, and I imagine for sure your teammates will definitely help you out if if anything when that time comes. Kind of like how you help them with the asphalt. It's kind of like full circle, doesn't it sound like? For sure, yeah. All right. It's been an absolute pleasure to, to spend time to, to interview you and also record this this program of my podcast where, I've had, where I had Holly earlier on. But for sure, after the win, I figured to kind of check up and see how things have been the past couple of days now that you won. And it sounds like you and a lot of takeaways, that is for sure. And I wish you certainly the best of luck going forward to the rest of the season. And, of course, the rest of your teammates as well, which has a few races to go out west. Yep. Thank you so much. And for those who are, are keen to know, where, where can they find you on social media? Um, I have my Facebook page, Gracie Trotter Racing. Uh, Instagram is Gracie Trotter 11, and so is Twitter. For sure, for sure. With that being said, it is time to shut the lens. There you have it. I hope you enjoyed that interview that I had with Gracie. I can't thank Bill McAnally Racing and, of course, Toyota for allowing me to have the opportunity to interview her just a few days after her maiden ARCA win. And that's for sure... A very impressive feat that she accomplished. And of course, her favorite drivers are as inspiring considering, like I mentioned, this day and age, people base their favorite drivers on who they saw at the time. The fact that you have throwback drivers on that on that list, like an AJ Foyne, is very admirable. Because in a driver that has a good idea what racing style she wants to be, and I totally see why she earned the respect from their competitors that are willing to help her out. And yeah, and compared to other interviews, I did chime in a little bit because conversations, you want to have a conversation, not just have, when you do interviews, it's good to have certain conversations where you put yourself into a similar spot where you talk about how Lakewood is different or Jeff Gordon, who is my all-time favorite driver, along with Ayrton Senna, to name a few. But let's face it, Jeff Gordon and restarts when it became double file was a nightmare. More of a nightmare than two car tandems, which was Jeff Gordon's bane of existence, in my honest opinion. Speaking of bane of existence, let's bring up this topic. 
Kentucky Speedway, the only track that Jeff Gordon never managed to win. The only one he had never managed to win. That's going to be gone for the 2021 NASCAR calendar. So the last race that Cole Custer won and put himself on the playoffs and won Rookie of the Year, that is the send-off. And what honestly is going to be called down in NASCAR history is one of the biggest blunders of all time. Ten races and you only remember the last two only for the finish. The other one being Kurt Busch beating out Kyle Busch and Eric Jones in a thriller of a conclusion of the 2019 Kentucky race. Speaking of Kurt Busch, Kurt won at his home track at long last in Las Vegas Motor Speedway. Not only Kurt won the race, he did it before his brother Kyle, who is still winless. But Kurt is now in the run of a not having to worry about Talladega or the Robo whatsoever like Kyle. Speaking of the Bush brothers, another Bush won. That is Kyle's son, Brexton. He got his first racing victory. Brexton wanted the date before Kurt did. So I asked him in the post-race video conference, what does it mean to have another Bush family member step into the racing shoes like he and Kyle did in a time period where Tom was essentially one of the top racers in Las Vegas, Nevada? Uh, it's, it's a great feeling to see little Brexton already piecing it together and, and putting it in victory lane and having that excitement and that joy of winning. It, it, it takes a team effort. And for my dad to be there and my mom, uh, this next generation, it, it's, it's amazing. And watching Samantha, my sister-in-law, helping Brexton, and it reminds me of my mom uh, when, when she was there doing everything she could for me. And I honestly had a feeling on the plane ride out here today uh, with his win, it was like, you know, my, my job's almost done here. You know, starting to become that old guy. I got to find the rocking chair because Brexton's taking over, but not so fast. It's great to be back in victory lane. Time will ultimately tell if Brexton is going to continue his racing career. He is very young. He's right around my younger brother's age. So it's it will be interesting. All I'm going to say is that I feel old as dirt at 25 years old, soon to be 26 this Friday. Good grief, all these youngins coming into the sport. And I already feel old at almost 26 years old. Anyway, anyways, that's a different another different topic for another time. I asked a follow-up question to Kurt after that one where I mentioned eh, how good is it to have Ross Chastain as his teammate next season? What may be a 50-50 chance Kurt's final year in the Cup Series. However, the audio that I got it from had missing gap where it was in audio it, it just glitched out it was missing audio so as much as I want to share what he said about Ross I can't unfortunately because I want to bring in a full song and tell it and hear it how it's meant to sound that missing gap kind of ruins the context of it but here's what Kurt implied Kurt sees a lot in him from Ross Chastain so in other words Ross Chastain is like Kurt Busch and as far as the driving style he understands how the circumstances boil down that he had that opportunity to go full-time Xfinity with Chip in 2019 before the whole DC Solar fiasco. But he's very happy and very sure, for sure, for sure, looking forward of having Ross as a teammate in that number 42 car. And like I mentioned, it may well be his final season. There's a 50-50 chance that 2021 might be it. He kind of teased it a little bit. He trolled, with, he trolled us at Texas Motor Speedway last November. It sounded like, is Kurt's getting sentimental? Is this it for Kurt? Is this 2020 his last year or this year is it? And then he trolled us in spectacular fashion saying that he signed a multi-year extension. Typically, multi-years are like two. 
Formula One or racing for that matter, they don't like talking about the multi-years, and I respectfully understand that. But typically, people kind of get a good idea what multi-year means. It means like at least two to three campaigns. But there's a little story for you that occurred in that press conference. He he, he trolled with us that there was going to be a retirement tour. We'll, we'll never know if he'll run an Indy 500 in the foreseeable future, though. That is one thing that is pretty much likely going to be guaranteed that there's no sign of that happening anytime soon. Consider, But with Jimmy Johnson coming to IndyCar, running the road in three-course races, maybe, maybe 2021 is a possibility. Maybe. No guarantees. That's just my near train of thought. But yeah, excellent win by Kurt. I was talking about Kurt because he had that epic win at Kentucky 2019, then Cole Custer winning it the following year in epic fashion. But fans, consensus says they're not going to miss Kentucky. They will miss Chicagoland Speedway, though. As I'm recording this on a Tuesday following my interview with Gracie Trotter, another track will be gone is Chicago. That one is an absolute bummer. An absolute bummer because that was 20 years. Well, there wasn't a 20th season at Chicagoland because of the pandemic, so they only had they only ran 19 seasons at that track. The same amount with Kansas, except Kansas got to have races, so they have completed their well. Coming up in October, they'll have completed their 20th season of existence, track existence, that is. That's an absolute shame. Chicago's going away. It was one of the more better 1.5 mile tracks. Very underrated. You had classic battles with Kyle Larson and Kyle Busch. The slide job from 2018. You also had Larson in the mix with Alex Bowman, who will forever go down in NASCAR history as the last ever winner at Chicagoland for the foreseeable future or period. Ironically, the tracks that are going away, their final race had first-time winners. But they were all in epic fashion. I lean more towards Chicagoland as the better track, not because Jeff Gordon wonder once in 2006. That was a beautiful moment with that whole thing with Matt Kansas and he got what he deserved that season. I still stand by it to this very day. But at the end, but grand scheme of things, it was beautiful. It was a one very underrated track. Yeah, there was times there wasn't as interesting. It was underwhelming at times. Remember, this was the site of David Rudiment's last win, or when Marty Reed made that incredible confusion to the audience that Kevin LePage won, thinking it was, what was it, Stanhouse, Trevor Bain, Carl Eber, whoever. It was a Roush car. No, was it Allgaier? I think it was, the confusion was Allgaier. I cannot look back to the tape, and knowing me, I have other stuff to worry about. That you'll just type in Kevin LePage, Marty Reed, you'll find it on YouTube. You'll find and you'll get my context of who Marty thought it was. Absolute shame Chicago's going away. It really is. It's kind of a bummer that I'm ending this season when the NASCAR schedule hasn't come out in 2021. But that's just how it is. As a matter of fact, you know what I'm thinking? Let's jump to Wednesday to hear my collective thoughts of the 2021 schedule alignment. So let's do that, shall we? Well, well, well. This is Wednesday Luis bringing you my quick thoughts about the NASCAR schedule realignment. Because it is completely different where we have six road course races. Two of them being brand spanking new, which are the Indianapolis Road Course and Circuit of the Americas. People wondering, Road America? I thought that was new. No, not exactly, because the NASCAR Cup Series used to render one time in the 50s, so it is a returning circuit. 
The other three road courses, of course, being Sonoma in June, early June, Watkins Glen in August, and you got the Roval in the fall. Quick thoughts about those road courses. I think six is the maximum ideal number. Honestly, in my eye, if you were telling me what would be the perfect number, I'd say four would be good. Four different tracks, which means you had to add one more. But the fact that we're going to have three different, three different road courses added to the calendar is incredible. I think six is the sweet spot, the absolute sweet spot. Being the Brickyard 400 for 27 years... That will no longer be on the Oval. That makes the Indianapolis 500 as the exclusive Oval race. Well, you have the Freedom 100, of course. But as far as the big ones, you only have the Indy 500 at the Oval. I say that's a much necessary change because, let's face it, ever since Tiger Gate in 2008, the Brickyard 400 has lost its luster big time. And Steve O'Donnell said it in the press conference that he will still treat that Indy Grand Prix circuit as a crown jewel event. We saw what happened in the Xfinity race. It brought some excitement. I'd imagine Cup will be the same. But, that being said, IndyCar is heavily affected by it. I'll say that more in a moment. Road America is, uh, is on the calendar. On the 4th of July weekend, I am very happy that some event like that, 4-mile track, it is now the largest track as far as the length of the miles is concerned. Just over 4 miles long. It's a hell of a lot better to have a renewed venue that will start a brand new tradition on 4th of July weekend than Indianapolis. Let's face it, Indianapolis and the 4th of July where everybody knows it's warm, everybody knows not many are going to show up, they have other things planned. It's blasphemous. I still don't like the fact that Daytona got moved as the regular season finale in my honest opinion. I still stand by it to this day. But at the very least, Road America is a great alternative. I totally welcome it, and I hope they certainly deliver, and I, you got to thank Ben Kennedy for that, making it possible for having cup racing at Road America for the first time in well over 60 years. It's been a long time, that's for sure. And, of course, the big one that has massive implications, it is CODA, Circuit of the Americas. Unfortunately, though, the big red flag is that it falls on the month of May in Indianapolis. As a matter of fact, on pole slash bump day. Well, great, there goes any shot of ever doing CODA because based on what Robin Miller posted on Racer.com as far as the 2021 IndyCar calendar, CODA is absent, which signifies that with NASCAR and SMI hosting Road America and CODA respectively, Road America on IndyCar is fine. But with CODA being an SMI venue as a consolation prize to, lead, to eliminate one Texas Motor Speedway Cup race, all this tells me that open wheel racing in Austin, Texas is dead. You can, I am not guaranteeing Formula One going back to Austin anymore. I just don't see it. And more on Texas and more speedways just shortly because that's one of the other big takeaways. And that being said, Coda is dead for when it comes to IndyCar and Formula One. I don't see them going back there, which sucks. It absolutely sucks when it comes for IndyCar because that's a unique track gone. And for Formula 1, it's a neat venue. But they've been in financial peril since day one when they first held the U.S. Grand Prix at that venue in 2012. The only way I see the U.S. Grand Prix staying in Formula 1 is if Indianapolis step up their game with Roger Penske at the helm. Or they find a way to put that Miami street circuit where it's next to the Dolphin Stadium, which I'm really not keen to that idea. The last time the Indianapolis was part of the Formula 1 calendar was in 2007. With that chicane now added since the last time they ran there, 
it's a lot easier and more appealing to go back to Indianapolis should that happen. But yeah, with SMI owning Coda as far as the host rice, you just not I just don't see IndyCar or Formula One coming back to Coda, which is an absolute bummer. NASCAR brings in the money. We'll see if that experiment works. And above everything else, what about Texas? Well, because Coda is going to replace one of the Texas Motor Speedway dates, as a consolation prize, Texas is the all-star race. No, not on the dirt. It is on the oval. Which people, with, with Kentucky gone, spoiler alert, I think it replaced, it becomes now the second league's favorite track by the fans. I'm indifferent because it's the closest venue to me to travel, so I have no comment on either end. Other than it's a perk due to the proximity. But, all-star race at Texas, get used to it. You may not like it. I may not necessarily fondling head over heels over the idea, but it is what it is. Eddie gets his way. That's the bottom line. Phoenix will be the championship race once again. Homestead Miami will be now the second round following the Daytona 500, which will be on Valentine's Day next year. I will talk about Daytona next season for sure, as far as 2020, because... I still planning to get a guest or two that were there that dreadful February 17th day. And of course the 16th, but more emphasis on the 17th because of what happened with Ryan Newman and Corey LaJoy. But that's a different shot for another time. We'll see how that works. Have fun have bringing more crowds to it. Albeit Speedways is now a one-week show. You got to consider Volusia and New Smyrna into that equation as well. And when you add that and Homestead, you have three straight weekends of Florida competition. I, 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 if somebody can find a way to do all of those, you're lucky and you are set for life. But for those who who are... They're in a box! The other ones are in the box. You have to pick and choose which one you want to put your money on. And looking at the prices for next year, as far as traveling is concerned and location... I may have to set my eyes on getting it right away to assure that I will be there for the entire speed weeks without any fault or fail. Another one that I don't necessarily agree is Bristol being on a dirt circuit. It's a hybrid dirt track. It's the first time NASCAR will have a dirt race on a cup level, that is, since 1970. But if you could have picked any other venue that is actual traditional dirt. Like like Charlotte, Texas has a dirt venue. You could have gone to Knoxville or Eldora. They're all within as big of a massive of a stretch as to begin with, but you pick Bristol. I'm there's been so much negativity about that because people say there's one side saying the fans have been wanting it, not exactly on social media per se. However, Brist, Bru, not Bruden Smith, Marcus Smith from SMI pitched in the idea of making one of the Bristol races a dirt race. It has been done before with the World Outlaws back in 2000 and 2001. At the same time, you could have picked any other venue. And I really hope it pans out. I really hope it pans out. And if that somehow becomes the first ever dirt race I go to, to shoot for us or what have you, that'll be unique. I, it was like, okay, it's a dirt track, albeit hybrid, it's something. That's the only one I'm really negative about. But the biggest negative is IndyCar. With their proposed 2021 calendar, Richmond and Iowa are gone. Pretty much from the discretion, pretty much due to NASCAR forcing me, forcing them to, they pretty much forced them out. I'm going to be bummed. They pretty much forced them out. 
we never got to see IndyCar Richmond because of the pandemic. The races in Iowa, they've been mishwashed, but at least it's a unique circuit. You won't, based on the schedule, you may not see either of them. Which is an absolute bummer, especially for Iowa, because like Chicagoland Speedway, their future is absolute in shambles. Speaking of Chicagoland, that's one of two venues that is being dropped from the cup calendar, the other one being Kentucky Speedway. Kentucky Speedway is not going to be necessarily missed by anybody. I will remember it for being the only venue that Jeff Gordon failed to win in his entire cup career. But people are not going to miss Kentucky, except for one that I know that are really upset about the idea of losing Kentucky in favor of a second Atlanta race that's going to be in a hot July, 400 miles long. It's part of a big plane where we're trying to make it more entertainment and casino revenue driven to where it warrants it. But the biggest winner of having a second date is Darlington. It's funny how nearly 20 years ago, that track looks like what's going to be gone. But now we're going to have two cup races at Darlington. And based on what we saw this year, and it's going to be a low downforce package, it warrants, it, is, it has literally earned the right to have a second race. Darlington is one of the more exciting tracks on tour these days. Always has been since I first started watching NASCAR 2003, but now more than ever, there's more enigma. There's more prestige to it. And we'll see how many people will show up for that Darlington race in the spring. The Saturn 500 will still be part of the playoff trail. And you, well, who knows what kind of throwback theme is going to be. But you always look forward to Darlington. Chicagoland is the one, the big bummer. Because that's another venue IndyCar cannot go anymore. It doesn't look like the track is going to last. NHRA is also affected because their drag strip, they won't have any racing in 2021 either. The last, yeah, it's one of the more better cookie cutter tracks out there these days. Yes, it had the slide job. You had also Alex Bowman winning there, battling with Kyle Larson. Kyle Larson is another guy we'll talk about in season number two because more than likely he'll be back in NASCAR time, we'll ultimately tell, as always. But it's an absolute shame his track is going to be gone. Because... Like Fontana, more than likely, before it becomes a short track, depending on approval, of course, that's two venues for any car that can no longer go. And it's an absolute shame. But, based on what Kentucky Speedway said, there's a good chance that other racing series can go there. If so, if I were Mark Miles, if I were Roger Penske, you go to Kentucky. You go there. You just go there. And it, it, just, period, you go there. There's no and ifs or buts. There's no in-between. You go there, period. We only have three ovals next year, Texas Gateway and the 500, with Texas a little asterisk because it's a doubleheader, and the other doubleheaders in 2021 that's being proposed is Detroit as always, and then you go back to Indianapolis on the road course. It's not a doubleheader, but you go back there twice. With the second Indy road course set to be in August, it's going to be part of the doubleheader for, the, you know, the Indy double that I talked about back in July, June and July. That's going to be a thing, but now in August, with both of them being on the Grand Prix circuit. I think that will work, and hopefully fans can witness that. And then NBC can glorify and hype the whole, whole hell they want about the indie double, the prestigious. Because where there's no crowds due to the pandemic, it's silly to promote it as such. It's pathetic. It'll be more, maybe we'll see crossovers. We really need some crossovers. Period. Period. No ands or buts. And then, of course, last but not least, Nashville Super Speedway, but that's already been announced. That's going to be on the calendar. It's going to be the same package with Darlington. Low downforce. So, maybe Nashville has a good chance of being good. We'll see about that. And I know I said it's going to be quick thoughts. I know I went off for a long time, but hey, 
There's so much to digest on the NASCAR calendar, also IndyCar, which I'm not necessarily happy with what is, everything's going on. All I know is, if I somehow end up doing both of them again next year, covering them for Motorsports Tribune or wherever outlet I may end up, it's going to make it very difficult to pick and choose which ones I, I want to do. Because you also have on the IndyCar side the 500, Long Beach, Portland, the West Coast races in the end of the year, Portland and Laguna Seca. So there's a lot to sing, a lot to ponder. And you have Texas as well to kick off the month of May. Man, oh man, oh man, there's a lot of decisions to make. But that being said, let's go back to Tuesday, Luis, to wrap off the season finale. And just like that, we're back to Tuesday, Luis, telling you that it's time to wrap up this episode in this season. But before I do that, I want to get the social media plugs out of the way. Twitter at DLT Files. Instagram, Luis D. Torres 94. L U I S D S and David T O R R E S 94. You can find me on Facebook at the page known as Behind the Exploratory Lenses, where you'll get some updates then and there on when season two is going to come out, who's going to be on my program, and vice versa. Luis Torres Multimedia. Type in LuisDTorres.com. You'll find my website where I have my works, my photos, my interviews, and what have you. It's a portfolio site, but it features a lot of content. You will find my blog in greater detail why I feel like 25 is the new 23 when it comes to the stereotype. Nobody likes it when you're that certain age. And that being said, it's time to cap off being 25. And to wrap up this season, here are my final takeaways of being 25 as I go into age 26. As much as a hellhole 2020 has been, as much as of a hellhole my past 365 or so days being 25, it has been quite a ride. The first third was amazing. It seemed like everything was going to go my way. Things were shaping up for the better. It was going to be a career year. Then the pandemic happened. Then a lot of changes went down where I may agree or disagree with to this very day. I may not, I may not like a lot of things that is happening in the world of racing. And I've been very vocal about it this season. That has been more of a detriment than a blessing being a 25-year-old without a future in the world of racing media at this moment in time. Maybe by season two, you'll know what I am. Whether or not I'm just going to be exclusively Motorsports Tribune is another time period and another topic we're discussing in the future, I may well be in multiple outlets by the time you hear me next time at 26 years old. But one thing is certain. It's made me reflect. It's made me think what has been the positives, also the negatives of being 25 and being where I am right now as an independent journeyman in the world of auto racing. And not just in auto racing, but also in the photography game. Where opportunities are hard to come by. Just like Evergreen, I made the absolute most. While I had a leg cramp, it was worth it because I got to shoot new content. That has proved to be beneficial in the long run. If it wasn't, if it wasn't for me going to Evergreen, I would not have any photos out west to use for quotes of post-race and vice versa. Or hand stuff to Joseph Strickley from TobyChristie.com when... Well, actually, I asked if he needed any photos of Trotter for his article because he typically does the ARCA stuff. I make sure to hand it over. He was op he openly was accepted of that, and I hand him a photo properly credited, which is very important. You want to be properly credited. That's why I applaud 
Joseph from me. Anyways, can't have everything what you want, even if you have those ambitious dreams like myself with the Indianapolis 500. We'll have to wait another year, hopefully. I don't have to wait much longer come 2021. You got to work harder. And while I have worked harder, it's still not necessarily enough in the grand scheme of things where you still got to push it. You still got to get yourself out there. And that's why when my Twitter, you see those post-race video conferences where I ask questions to keep myself out there and see if anybody will notice over time. No other than Bob Pagras, who is doing it the right way, because he, his videos are mostly from what he asked, not from whoever else did. It's important to get yourself out there. And more than ever, I have tried to make myself out there, no matter the circumstances, no matter how many times I said to myself, I'm not going to tweet. I'm giving up. I, I just want to submit to the defeat of, of known as consequential life. But I keep fighting. I keep fighting. I push through. I push through. And I push through. And I feel like now more than ever, when I turn 26, I got to keep that fight. Got to find the confidence, uh, my self-esteem. Find a way to be recognizable in a positive manner. And not be too hard on myself. I've been hard on myself for the longest of time. And I talked to a few of my friends about it. They more than willingly will say that I've been hard on myself. But my follow-up statement is that at this moment, I'm not going to let those stuff define me anymore. I'm not going to let it eat me up. Sure, I may not be happy where I am at a lot of things as certain status groups. But there's always room for growth. The, as you get older, the more you learn. And I feel like at age 25, I learned that harsh reality. That I'm not going to allow myself to go through the same song and dance at age 26. There are takeaways. And I'm going to make sure those takeaways work. So when next year rolls along, I have more positive stories to tell you at age 26 than I did at age 25. Where I said I made most of what I wanted to do. Not be hard on myself. Self-love coming first. Because if anything else. The word love has been a detriment. I've fallen in love. I've fallen out of love. I grew to hate people. I outgrew some of the hate from those people. But at the end of the day. Self-love is very important. Because if you don't love yourself. How are you going to expect anyone to love you back. Or have that self-esteem where you say. Alright. I feel accepted for myself. I am who I am. I'm happy who I am. No matter the difficulty, no matter the hell that I've been through the previous twenty, the previous years of my existence so far. I want to make sure this time around, next year when I'm gonna be 27 and 2021, I got more stories to tell you that are uplifting, which is why I decided I need a few months off from this podcast to learn more, understand myself. What I really want to make behind the exploratory lenses be in the long run. I've established, the, I laid the foundation this season of what I wanted to be. You heard it from TJ Trinchell, Gracie Trotter, Holly Holland, Balter Gracing, Frisky Nixon, Emerson Arden, Brandon Crossland. You heard it from those guys. But next season, you're going to hear more of it from other people. And I hope you enjoy those guests in the foreseeable future. Much like I hope you enjoyed the guests that I've had so far. Because I I said about my brother. I want to have him on where we talk about stuff that doesn't lead to political debates. Because this show is not about politics. It will never be about that. 
I may have talked about it a little bit in episode number three that I purposely did not promote. It is a very short episode. It is during the time of the whole movement that we're dealing with in this very day. It was a fix, it was a time of frustration. If anything else, if people are, are not going to care what you feel, you got to sit, look in your mirror and say, do you care what other people think or you don't or you care about letting out what you feel out there even if nobody listens to you? And if you want to just say, I'm not going to bring up certain topics again because nobody cares, then that's okay. If you do, then that's okay. More power to you. Do what you own will. What feels right for you. With the exception of a few things, it's your decision. Like my decisions are my decisions. What works best for me. And that's oftentimes what works best for the team. In this case, more Sports Tribune over the past couple years. If it's a challenge, I'm willing to accept the challenge, whether I like it or not, per se. Most, about 90, almost all of them I am on board with it. There's very, very few that I'm like, okay, I'll make it work. I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily keen to the idea, but I'm willing to do it for the sake of the team and also grow. Because age 25 was the year of growth. That is my moral message to you guys. Age 25 was the year of growth. Age 26 could be the year of growth, but... More like the year of self-esteem growth. And that is my main goal for the next 365 or so days. Self-esteem is number one. When I build my self-esteem up to an absolute positive level where I feel like I'm happy where I am. I'm confident in what I've done. I can relish the moments naturally. Not be bitter. Not be a prick. Then I got the job done. In my eye. And that is the big goal. Aside, of course, getting the damn driver's license that hopefully by next year. It's going to be soon. It's going to be definitely before 2020 is over. That's been established. It's just a matter of when is the time. The time's got to be perfect. We're getting there. I'm getting there for that opportunity to finally be behind the wheel and get to that next level in my career, the next step. And that's going to be my closing thought. Getting to the next step is vital. Or the year 2020 will be known as essential. Because self-esteem, recognition, and love, especially oneself, is essential for the future. That being said, this has been Season 1 of Behind the Exploratory Lenses. And it's now time for me to shut the lens. And until we meet again, catch you guys later.